0: This is a relay project. Seriously?
1: Seriously?
0: Seriously? Seriously. Seriously, Seriously starts now. Here's Supria and Ryan. Hey, hey, it's Wednesday, August 3rd, and you're listening to Seriously with Supriya and Ryan. I am Supriya DeVetti in Toronto. I'm Ryan Jesperson in Edmonton. We're coming up on the final debate for the Conservative Party. We're going to get into that in a little bit more detail. And, um, you know, both Pierre Polyev and Leslie Lewis have decided they'd rather eat $50,000 and hand that over to the party than uh, to actually debate with their fellow you know leadership contenders which is interesting do you perceive
1: um, the uh decision on behalf of either candidate to be a different optic is it is it like a power move for pierre Poliev, who can afford the 50 grand and doesn't care and he's making a statement about the last debate in edmonton you know he, he wants to plant his flag on that and, and, and insist that it was poorly done and and is leslin lewis doing it for different reasons in a different context or or do you think it's the two of them versus the rest <laughs> are, are, are pierre and leslin on the same page
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Pierre obviously as the very much the front runner, right, and uh, very much having been the fundraising uh, front runner, like he raised more money than basically all of the other candidates combined. um, He can afford to sort of sit this out, uh, you know, and not say that Leslie Lewis can't necessarily, but I don't know if her name recognition um, is the same or her strategy is the same, because when you're running a front runner campaign, um, like Pierre's team is, you don't want to give your opponents any sort of opportunity to take you down a peg. And so I think he's playing it, you know, somewhat safe.
1: Yeah. So. We, we saw the numbers recently off the top of my head. I think Pierre Poullier, raised uh four plus million bucks. So to put that yeah. in context, 50 grand is pocket change. Uh, not a big deal. Is it, a, we are going to talk about this later. I don't mean to get off the script. We are going to talk <laughs> about this later, whether or not this is a good look, a bad look. We talked about Jean Charest's so-called attack ad, Uh, A few days ago, you and I did on Real Talk, uh, uh, getting him, specifically hitting him for not attending that debate. So we'll find out if that'll land with conservative party members or not. A big day in our neck of the woods yesterday on Tuesday as Alberta finally started offering COVID vaccinations for kids under the age of five. We were one of the outliers, one of the provinces or territories that hadn't been offering it yet. And everybody was looking over the fence, waiting for Alberta kids to get their chance. So that's big for parents.
0: And it was also weird because it kind of announced it kind of quietly, mm-hmm. right? It was like the Friday of a long weekend. Also in the news, um, Canada got a huge win last week um, in the U.S. where they changed the Buy American Electric vehicle tax credit to North Americans, so that EVs that are assembled in Canada will then count for that tax credit, which is you know pretty good work on behalf of uh, industry and and government for for pushing that. Um, this is also interesting. Tiger Woods turned down seven hundred ish million dollars uh, to play for well, essentially the Saudis. The right? Saudis, that- the live
1: tour. Yeah, this is Greg Norman that confirmed this the CEO of the live tour of course the golfing great he says this was before his time as the chief executive so he didn't make the offer but he did confirm that live golf's original offer to arguably the greatest golfer of all time in the twilight of his career by the way it's worth mentioning was between seven and eight hundred million u.s dollars <laughs> would said no to it which uh
0: Good for him. Principles, I guess. I don't know. That's I guess. A whole heck of a lot of money. I guess. But.
1: I have a bridge that I would reach on my journey where it would be principles <laughs> up to a certain price. <laughs> and then I'm making my way over. To put it into context, Tiger Woods' career earnings, this is on the tour. So these aren't endorsements. And his biggest earnings have been his endorsements, obviously. But his career earnings on the PGA Tour, are about $120 million. So mm-hmm. this offer, what's that, five, six times his career earnings to go play there yeah. for a few years? Right, the guy that uh, arguably probably played his last British Open at St Andrews just a few weeks ago. So, pretty wild stuff. I wonder if that is has is Tiger Woods back in everybody's good books now?
0: I don't know. I guess so. Like I'm not. I don't know what. Like what are the golf people saying? What are the well, sport golf people, people always
1: love Tiger. Golf okay, people something. always love Tiger, but there was that faction, a significant number of people that didn't have a lot of time for him after the. Whole uh, elon Nordgren thing, and then everything yeah, blew I mean. up. I'm not sure if you heard or not. Yeah. Uh, and then I, <laughs> I think probably him surviving that big car crash and coming back to be able to walk and play golf again was a big deal. When when he won that his most recent Masters, I think that was yeah. Everyone loves a the comeback. Everybody right? Loves the comeback. So. Yeah. Yeah, $800 million to go play golf on the Live Tour. Unbelievable stuff. I know it's not a golf podcast, but you have to wonder. They're throwing around money like this. Mickelson, $200 million. Dustin Johnson, $150 million. $25 million purses at all the tournaments. No cuts. Three rounds instead of four. It's a lot more appealing. The destinations are more appealing. you got to wonder what happens to the PGA two, three years from now if more and more golfers make their way over to, to play under that. well, especially They purse. got this kind
0: of money, right? Just sucking them all up. They can't yeah. all have principles like Tucker.
1: Pretty wild stuff. Let's get into the, the news. We want to talk about, but before we do, Supriya, we're so proud to partner with our title sponsor. We know training. If you're an association, a regulator, a government ministry, or a credentialing and licensing body, you're going to want to know. We know training.
0: Yeah. If you need to deliver training in a regulated industry, so if we're talking about accredited training for licensed professionals like, you know, insurance, financial planning and real estate, or if you're doing something like liquor and cannabis for retail workers um, on the provincial side of things, you know, it can be a huge challenge to deliver, you know, high quality professional training in an efficient manner. And we know from news stories in the past that when people in these incredibly important industries don't actually use a trustworthy or a responsible training partner, it can go rather awry. Um, because it results in a huge risk to the public and it compromises people's safety and well-being. Since 2005, we know training has helped hundreds of North American associations and organizations deliver the highest quality training and testing solutions. I've
1: known members of this team for a long time, Supriya. This is not just a standard LMS platform. They specialize in high stakes training, like you said, for associations, regulators, governments, and credentialing bodies with the highest degree of quality and trust they're a fully managed solution partner who will handle everything for you and we know that's what you're looking for their platform their learner verification technology make sure you're credentialing the right people with that high degree of trust if you're looking for a training partner that can provide high stakes training without the hassle look up we know training you can find all the details get their phone number get in touch Build that relationship from the start at weenotraining.ca.
0: All right, let's get to the lead. So Ryan, I don't think it's any um, surprise to you, certainly, um, but healthcare is at a crisis point in this country, and there are a lot of different angles to look at this, but this is what really caught my eye from last week was there was a senior citizen um, out in British Columbia who took out a newspaper ad to try and get her husband's prescription renewed. Um, we've got a, a, an image of that here that I, I just want to flash for people because it, it does show the lengths to which people are going to in order to reach out to you know, doctors and other healthcare workers. What happened to this woman was that she was basically told by the pharmacist that she needed a, a physician to renew the prescription. And their her her own family doctor had retired and they weren't able to find a replacement in the interim. And even doing like some of those virtual, you know, um, health apps, uh, they didn't have any availability. And this is what she resorted to. Now, this is compounded by the fact that basically all over the country, this isn't specific to British Columbia by by any stretch. Um, In in Toronto, for example, uh, Toronto General is under what they're referring to as a critical care bed alert. um, And that's obviously bad. And in Ontario as well, uh, the health minister here is basically refusing to acknowledge whether the state of hospitals And, you know, the kind of staffing shortages that they're going through and having to close down, you know, various ERs across the province and having to limit care times across the province is acceptable or not. And I don't know, it's like you and I have been talking about this for quite some time, right? Um, Through Real Talk uh, on, on your other show and throughout the campaign here in Ontario, I was like, why the fuck aren't we talking about healthcare throughout the federal campaign uh, last summer? I was like, why the fuck aren't we talking about healthcare? And it seems like now healthcare is breaking all around us all over the country. And we're not really getting to the bottom of what some of the solutions could be, at least from our, from our political leaders, the the healthcare folks and the healthcare workers that are on the ground are, are sort of banging this drum and have been for quite some time, but there seems to be a bit of a disconnect here.
1: Well, I, and I mean, it doesn't seem like that long ago, does it? At the same time, it, it feels like eons ago, I guess, when in Vancouver and Toronto and, and other major cities across the country, what was it? It was at shift change, right? It was at like 6 yeah. p.m. or 7 p.m. People were out on their balconies. People were out on their front porches banging pots and pans, banging drums, using noisemakers to to signal their appreciation to healthcare workers. And then we saw that, that second wave of, of public sentiment in a completely opposite, different, and, and horrific direction, the, the harassment of healthcare workers, right? This was, I guess, about a year, a year and a half into COVID, where people started protesting outside hospitals and exhausted healthcare workers walking from the parking lot on their way into a forced overtime shift were then spat on with insults hurled their way. And now we're back to how it used to be uh, before the banging on pots and pans. This was just this is just the the regular state, the resting state of healthcare commentary in the country, which is the politicized nature of it. The workers themselves telling us what a crisis point they're at, uh, trying to communicate what what delayed surgeries actually mean to people Mm -hmm. or, or what a lack of resources actually mean to people. And then the politicians pointing out that ah, these are the doctors, these are the nurses, these are the big unions, planting those seeds of doubt in people's minds. Is it really as bad as the nurses say it is, or are they just looking for a better deal? How quickly we forget where we were a couple of years ago, where we all seem to be on the same page, where we all insisted we're all in this together. I'm grateful for that senior's ad, the one that she took out in the Victoria Times Colonist, desperately looking for a doctor to fill her 82-year-old husband's prescriptions because that's the real-life story. That's, that's the anecdotal evidence that the system's broken. But you know what? That's when people start picturing... What if that was my grandfather? What if that was my grandmother taking out the ad in the newspaper? Then it becomes real to people. A surgical delay doesn't matter to people until it's somebody they know that can't get their hip replaced. And then all of a sudden they take it seriously.
0: Well, and I mean, that's a good point um, that you're raising just with respect to it being relatable. And I think as a part of this, that kind of escapes this conversation when we're talking about healthcare more generally is that class plays a huge factor right and we don't really talk about that so like if you are uh, uh, upper middle class chances are you know a doctor or a healthcare worker in your friend circle or at least in your friend of friend circle and so it becomes a lot easier to get a prescription renewed or get a referral for something if you can know somebody who can help you out and and part of the the conversation here is i think acknowledging that already within our system there were these you know cracks and gaps and chasms and the, the pandemic has really just exacerbated it, and you know, I, I tweeted l- last week that um, you know we probably should have talked about healthcare in the provincial election we just had, and a bunch of partisans, both NDP and Liberals, were so pissed at me um, and slid into those you know DMs saying we were banging the, the the drum on healthcare, we talked about it every day during the election, and like that's I don't know, like I'm going to call bullshit because talking about dental care and pharma care. Um, isn't the same as hammering the message that the healthcare system is literally collapsing before our eyes. And the fact of the matter is that the NDP and the Liberals, in in Ontario anyway, ran, you know, a suboptimal campaign. And they're right to point out that third-party groups um, were muzzled because of the Protecting Ontario Elections Act, which was this piece of legislation that was incredibly effective at silencing, you know, the various groups of people who have been mad at the Ford government this past election. So, like, think uh, you know, parents uh, whose kids have been out of school, parents of kids with autism, you know, healthcare workers, teachers, et cetera. Um, but the fact of the matter is they put the legislation through by, you know, invoking the notwithstanding clause and it went through. And I think the liberals and the NDP just got a little bit too used to or reliant on the fact that these third party groups were going to go out and bang the drum for them. And, you know, they didn't do it and because they couldn't. And I think it's worth noting that Ford, for his, you know, all the criticism you want to throw at him and his government, he didn't create this mess, right? Um, And if he wants to be pissed at liberals, he should be pissed at the Wynn liberals or the McGuinty liberals. Um, But he is making active choices, and his government is making active choices that are prolonging um, this and are making it worse. A really good example is capping nurses' pay at 1%, which is below the rate of inflation in normal times, let alone, you know, now. And like, I don't know. It just feels like I don't think anybody would blame a premier um, of any partisan stripe who said, hey, look, I didn't sign up for, um, you know, fixing decades long of chronic uh, neglect and underfunding in our healthcare system. So, like, I'm out. I don't expect any premier or any politician to actually say that. Um, But I think most people would be understanding if they didn't want to fix this mess in front of them, because it is a huge mess. And until we recognize the breadth and the the actual scope of the problem, we're never going to be able to solve it.
1: Well, because what does solving it look like? Solving it looks like plugging more cash into it, right? Addressing recruitment, retention, morale issues. And how do you plug more cash into it? You either pull it from other areas, which means probably pretty prominent cuts, which will upset the electorate, or you raise taxes. Uh, theres I, I don't know what other option there is. Maybe I'm oversimplifying this. But, it you know, I mean, certainly in Western Canada right now, there's been a lot of focus on healthcare spending, but in a completely different area. <laughs> how about this story about Alberta's chief medical officer of health? You always feel... Uh, Do you feel bad? That's not the right way to put it. This on the heels of us talking about the live golf tour where people are being offered three quarters of a billion dollars to take their talents to different fairways. But Alberta's chief medical officer of health it was just reported by Janet French of the CBC, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, in addition to her salary last year, 2021 of three hundred and sixty four grand or so. She took home an additional two hundred and twenty eight thousand dollars in cash benefits uh, a quarter million dollar bonus during the 2021 calendar year. It's, it's part of an adjusted formula, Sapria, that compensates the chief medical officer of health for every week that she works over 45 hours. So she comes in at just under 600 grand for the covid year for 2021 compared to other chief medical officers of health across the country. Dr. Bonnie Henry in B.C. Uh, paid about 342 grand for the year without any bonuses uh, Dr. Robert Strang, Nova Scotia, three hundred and five grand without any bonuses. Uh, Dr. Shahab in Saskatchewan, four hundred and eleven grand last year, including about eighty grand in bonuses. Uh, the Chief Medical Officer of Health in your home province of Ontario, Dr. Moore, uh, received about a quarter million, about two hundred and thirty-five thousand in the twenty twenty-one calendar year. It gets off lucky a little bit. The stipulations of his contract do not allow for disclosure whether or not he received any bonus pay. The federal counterpart uh, Dr. Teresa Tam earned her maximum salary last year of 265k the government has since raised her max salary to 324. So that gives you some some benchmarks
0: Yeah, but like doctors make money. I don't know if that's a surprise to anyone. But, uh, you know, my dad's a physician and his whole selling point to me about me needing to have gone to med school is that the dumbest person in your med school class is still guaranteed a six-figure salary (laughs) and they're almost um, impossible to fire. And so like that's not a bad selling point if you're trying to get your, you know, annoying 13-year-old daughter uh, into medicine. But that is the reality. I don't know people are pretty pissed though about Dr. Hinshaw's uh, take home pay, are they not? Uh, yeah, I mean
1: some people are. I, I think that uh, other people I, I've seen some some prominent voices and who cares what prominent means? I mean, I've seen you know the the average person as well, John and Jill Q public, some of them saying you gotta you gotta pay for quality. It's not her fault that her the terms of her contract that she was offered and signed kicked in uh you know we can't imagine the workload that she was under probably working 15 hour days for extended periods of time and and that's what you get i mean you know an orthopedic surgeon that you've never heard of makes double uh what she Mm -hmm. took home i mean like there's there's a ton of healthcare practitioners in the country making a million plus for sure uh let alone those that are in private practice um i you know but on a side note, you and I have never really discussed two physicians, kids here. Neither of us went into
0: medicine. Isn't that interesting? I That's, mean, you know, mm-hmm. I know, I could write an entire thesis That's on a me. Different... I mean, I actually went and I, I got in. I wrote the MCAT. I got into med school and then I had to tell my dad I wasn't going. Oh. So, like, it was a big thing. I you had, had to, to like settle get for my... law school, hang. Eh? Yeah, I mean, you say that, but yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, he cried openly in the restaurant as I told him, and I brought him to a crowded restaurant on purpose.
1: Oh my god, it was like you were breaking up with him.
0: It was <laughs> as if I had told him I was going to go sell drugs on the corner or something. Yeah, but yeah,
1: yeah. I, so, so yeah, so six hundred grand for the chief medical officer of health. Here's here's the reason. It's I don't know that the salary is a tough look in so many ways as her getting bonused a hundred and six. Public servants in Alberta under the terms of their contract will be bonused out for a total of about two and a half million dollars, not billion, two and a half million dollars. But you know who's not receiving bonuses, obviously, is the ICU docs, the ER docs, the nurses, the, nurses, the respiratory yeah. therapists, the yeah. porters, the hospital security guards, the and everybody else, the yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. else. Uh, that, of course, went above and beyond and continues to go above and beyond. So I think optically it's tough. Um, I talked to uh, a couple of people on the record about this, uh, in in particular one of the candidates to be Alberta's next premier, uh, a conservative, a former minister by the name of Lila Ahir, and, and she said, listen, she says this is on us. She says this is on the government to communicate this. This is not on Dr. Dina Hinshaw. But, of course, she's taking fire and – Alberta's been somewhat divided, maybe kind of like the rest of the country, a microcosm here, where some, the loyalists to the premier, to Jason Kenney, I still call him the premier. He resigned a couple of months ago, but he's, he's still here. Uh, you know, we'll say, well, what did you want him to do? It's a tough balance, right? Trying to find the right move. When do you close businesses? When do you inter- implement mask mandates? What do you do about kids in schools, you know, when there's outbreaks? Uh, and, and then, of course, there are the folks that believe that based on the numbers alone, that Alberta's COVID management was among the worst in the country. To, so to see the chief medical officer getting bonused out, well, an and additional that's a quarter better million criticism. is the tough luck.
0: Yeah, that's a better criticism, to be honest, which is like, you know, given Alberta's uh, response and given the fact that, you know, the healthcare system has been under strain and under dire strain at multiple points throughout the pandemic and going forward with the best summer ever, et cetera, et cetera. Um, was that something that Hinshaw, you know, signed off on and. If she didn't, then there's like all sorts of questions there. But I mean, if anything, that is a better criticism than just being like, that's too much money.
1: All right. Let's take a look at uh, another one of the big stories this week, of course. And, and if you're listening to Seriously, the moment it comes out, we can say tonight, Wednesday night, a conservative leadership debate, the final one. Of course, the talking points on this one will be relevant after the fact. And that's not so much, Cypria who showed up, but who didn't.
0: Yeah, who didn't? So Leslin Lewis and Pierre Polyev both sitting out the last debate for the Conservatives Um, and it's interesting, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the intro, but basically, you know, Pierre Polyev's camp is very much running a front-runner campaign and, you know, as they should not only is he, like, leading in terms of fundraising, he's really leading in terms of, like, members um, signed, he has a good geographic distribution, um, so says his camp, you know, so, like, all of these things he's got going for him, but one thing that Leslin Lewis um, is highlighting, which I found rather interesting is like last week, she puts out this open letter to LIOC, so the organizing committee. And if uh, we can zoom in on those questions here, because she, you know, is pointing to LIOC and saying, this is what I'm hearing from folks on the ground. And she has a slew of questions there, you know, a couple of which are like, what are we going to do about the World Economic Forum? And they're encroaching on our privacy and the WHO, what are we going to do about that? And you're kind of like rolling your eyes because you're like, okay, it's more like, conspiratorial stuff, but if this is what she's actually hearing from members on the ground and this is what people are raising to her, isn't that the kind of thing that the conservative, you know, debate should then be asking and getting a sense from the leadership contenders, you know, where they stand on these issues? And the last question she put out there in that letter is really salient because it's you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically like what are we going to do when the liberals bring up abortion in the next election. And that's where she's super really not wrong because the conservatives have sort of relied on the fact that they can, you know, try and not talk about abortion, even though a good chunk of their caucus is, you know, anti-choice. And they clearly are the only party that is not a fully pro-choice party, which is fine. That's their prerogative. But then you're going to have to have an answer for that during an election and not just like hide like a turtle in its shell every time somebody brings it up.
1: It's a fair point and again you got to kind of feel in a way I don't know why I'm taking this angle this on this episode of seriously on who I'm feeling for or who you got to feel for but how frustrating for the candidates that are showing up to that debate when all the conversation around it is who didn't
0: Yeah yeah we'll find yeah, out it's like- Womp womp,
1: basically. All All right, let's take it. Before we run out of time, this is an interesting story, in particular out of eastern Canada, to the Maritimes, Prince Edward Island, a brew pub there facing fire. But but the story, the premise of this is not just limited to that brew pub. We've seen instances of this blowback, backlash for hosting events in past
0: Yeah, we have. So just to give folks a little bit of sense here, um, this brew pub, Lone Oak uh, pub was faced and inundated with harassment. We even had their van vandalized after the prime minister made a lunch stop there. Um, Yeah, there you go. There's a picture. And um, their Google reviews have been inundated with like false reviews, really bringing down their rating, which is really shitty. And it was, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. And I don't want to sound too precious about this, but like, I don't think this is really who we are or like what we can, you know, strive to be. But back in April, Pierre Polyev actually had an event in, uh, at the Steam Whistle Brewery here in Toronto, and they put out a statement, um, you know, distancing themselves from, from the Polyev camp. And part of the statement read, like, Steam Whistle is in no way affiliated with Pair Polyev, does not endorse his political views, nor did the brewery sponsor the event. And it was like a weird thing for them to have done at the time um, because it's like, well, why host the guy if you're just going to, like, distance yourself after? And, like, they host politicians all the time and they host events all the time. Um, they don't necessarily always put out those sorts of statements. But like in hindsight, maybe they were onto something.
1: Yeah, I think they were onto something because I don't know if the general public is smart enough to figure out how these hospitality businesses work. They rely on these types of events. And that includes hosting political candidates. It would also include hosting business leaders, private anniversaries, birthday parties, corporate Christmas events. Typically you would think that the risk a business would take would be hosting, you know, the soldiers of Odin or some <laughs> sort of a white supremacist group, some sort of a really really polarizing, nefarious, nasty collective.
0: This isn't that. I mean, maybe at I the mean, time, I, I'm sure people would say the liberals are that, though. And that's the thing. Well,
1: and other people probably feel like Pierre Poliev represents yeah. a lot of that based on his yeah. support of the convoy and whatever else. But but the point is, uh, these are businesses that require uh, these types of of hosting opportunities. They need their restaurants packed. And this could be hotels, conference centers, Or what have you, right? Especially after two years of COVID, where where most of them probably either shut down and laid off their staff or did everything they could, probably ran up lines of credit to try to keep the lights on. And, And so it's tough to see Canadian businesses targeted like this. But this is also consumers. I'm not talking about smashing out the van windows and vandalizing the property. That's not what I'm talking about. But consumers do have the, the power uh, to vote with their wallets, to make statements with where they spend their money and, and totally. where they don't. And that's something that businesses do have to consider. You know Whether or not somebody is heinous, if they are polarizing, these owners, these managers will have to ask the question for us on our bottom line, is it worth it?
0: So let me ask you one last quick question. But do you think this makes the end, or this points to the end of you know restaurants and brew pubs and places like this hosting politicians, just because it's not worth the risk anymore? No,
1: and it can't be the end of it. Like number one, where are the politicians going to go, and number two, where's the revenue yeah. going to come for the businesses? I just hope that stuff like this is actually investigated and prosecuted. I think that if somebody's made an example of, uh, I yeah. think that that's what has to happen here. But it's just a it's a really unfortunate way for somebody to express their disdain uh, for who this is, because really, if you look at it as well, uh, Polyev can come across as the martyr here too, not just the brew pub, right? It makes partisan liberals or NDP supporters or whomever's opposing Pierre Polyev or the greater conservative movement look like the immature babies. I wouldn't say smashing out windows and harming businesses is a good look,
0: Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that I don't know if any of those Google reviews, like a good chunk of them probably weren't even from people on PEI, right? Like they're just people that are trying to glom onto the thing. That's one thing I want
1: to touch on again, and I'm glad you circled back on that. That is such a vulnerability for businesses that can have the Google review for business is such a big thing. And the fact that these swarms of locusts can drop in and just demolish it, just eviscerate a Google rating in half an hour. Power. What a business has worked to build for years. We got to figure out a way around that. That's a real problem.
0: On that cherry note. I think that wraps it up for us for this week. Um, Ryan and I are always looking forward to hearing from you. You can uh, reach us at talk at seriouslypod.com. You can email us directly there. You can check out our website, seriouslypod.com, at Supri and Ryan on Twitter and at seriouslypod on Instagram.
1: That's right. We mentioned what we're showing you on the screen. Of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere you download your podcast. And we love when you tell your friends about Seriously. We'll see you again next week. Wednesday.